Exodus 11. And the title of my message this morning is Behold the Lamb. So in Exodus chapter 11, and really the previous chapters, in the chapters 7 through 10 so far, we have looked at the judgments that have been meted out by the hand of God through Moses and Aaron as his spokesmen. Uh, They are essentially representing God to Pharaoh and Pharaoh to God. And God keeps telling them to do these things, to be his hands and feet, and to you know, essentially release these signs and wonders in, among the nation of Egypt. And while he's doing that, he, the Lord is also telling him, the Pharaoh is not going to listen. And the purpose of his not listening is that God's going to deliver his people out of the land, whether Pharaoh wants it or not. But he will have an opportunity to be involved in releasing them because right now they're slaves. And so God is revealing to the nation of Egypt, I am God and there is no other. So with that being the case, we've seen him turn uh, the Nile River from water into blood. We've seen uh, the land covered with frogs that have come out of the Nile. We've seen dust literally turned into swarms of gnats. We've seen Uh, Egypt filled with swarms of flies. We've seen uh, the Egyptians' livestock killed with disease and pestilence. All of these things are meant to get their attention and wake them up and show them like, you're not following me. And, And it's also judging Pharaoh because all he had to do was obey the word of the Lord. By the way, every human in the world has the opportunity to hear the word of God and to respond to it. Now, most respond by saying no. But to those who will humble themselves and surrender and just simply heed what it says, there's so much blessing attached to it. And there's a a, a relationship that God is offering. Uh, We've also seen the Egyptians and their animals covered with boils. And we've seen uh, hail and lightning sent down on Egypt to judge them and to destroy their crops. We've seen locusts that were sent after the hail that that kind of lapped up the rest of their resources in the fields that were growing. And then we saw Egypt last week covered with darkness, darkness so dark that you can feel it for three whole days. And so whether they realize it or not, they are accountable to what they've experienced And if they don't heed the word of the Lord, there is still yet a plague to come. Here's the reality of Scripture. Here's what the whole Bible tells us. That God is holy and that we are sinful. And Adam and Eve had perfect conditions, and yet with one command, they rejected it. They did what felt right, and it got us in this whole mess in the first place. And so God is judging Pharaoh. We see this very clearly through the plagues. And he's judging the nation of Egypt for their sin. What was their sin? (laughs) Rejecting the command of God. Let my people go so that they may serve me. And if you remember, the Israelites showed up and they were a blessing to the Egyptians in the beginning. Remember, Joseph had the plan of salvation so that they could be saved from their physical famine. There was no food in the land. There was no rain. There was nothing to eat. And so Joseph shows up. Well, 
I say there was a famine. There was getting ready to be a famine. And it was going to be worldwide. But all that said, now that they're there and they've been there for 400 years, they've become slaves. In exchange for blessing, uh, the world has made them their slaves. And as they are slaves, the Egyptians are sinning against the Israelites. Remember the promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So God's fulfilling his promise to the nation of Israel. But lest we become judgmental against Pharaoh and Egypt only, all people that reject the command of God, that don't follow his word, that don't take heed to it, are subject to judgment, all of them. Later in Israel's history, having experienced so much blessing from God, they will begin to become comfortable in the land that God gives them. And once they get comfortable, they'll kind of settle. And they'll start to become more like the people in the land where they live than the people of God. They'll stop doing the feast. They'll stop obeying the commands. And as they stop doing those things, they'll start to serve other gods. And they'll start to serve those gods and give their resources to those gods and sacrifice to those gods and make gods and high places to worship them so much, in fact, that they'll start to sacrifice physically, sacrifice their children in obeisance to these gods. And so later in Israel's history, God will judge them for their sin as well. So this is, the mankind's, pro- this is mankind's problem. Man is inherently sinful and, and given to his own whims and desires. He will sin against God and that creates a crevasse, a, a valley. It, it creates something that we cannot cross. We cannot rework our way to God. Religion means to relink. It means to reconnect. It's our way of getting back to God. But the reality is, is that our sin has separated us so far from God that we cannot climb across. There's no, there's no rocket booster that can get us that far. Um, God is holy and we are sinful and our sin separates us from him. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. But thank you, Lord, that Jesus doesn't leave us separated from God. Instead, he says, if you want to be reconnected with God, I'm going to have to get personally involved, and I'm willing. But you have to respond in faith and accept that I am the only way to return to God. So he bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. And we're going to get to see one of the first types of that in the Bible here, uh, aside from Noah. You know, there's been several other types of that. But here, through what's going to take place in this last judgment, we'll see Jesus get personally involved. So God judges all sinners, and yet God has and will provide a way uh, to be saved. He always provides a a sacrifice. He always provides what we need at just the right time. Think about Genesis 22. Abraham is told by God, I want you to take your son. I want you to take the son of promise that I've provided to you when you're in your 90s. The the son that I said I would bring a nation through, many nations. He said, and I want you to take that son, whom you love very much, to a mountain that I will show you three days away, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill him as a burnt offering. And so Abraham does what I probably wouldn't have done. He says, okay. He doesn't get it, but he's obeying. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so as he takes the journey for three days carrying the sticks, carrying the fire, 
carrying all the things that would be needed for the sacrifice. He then leads his servants at the bottom. He takes his son to the top. His son, by the way, doesn't know that he's the offering. His son only knows they're going to make an offering. And as they head up the hill, the servants, and and I think even Isaac goes, hey, where's the offering? And he says by faith, God will provide himself the offering. And so they get up there. He built an altar from unbroken stone. He lays the, the fuel for the fire because there's no trees up there. There's nothing able to be burned. He's taken all that with him. And then he takes his son, who is not a toddler, but his son is, is a, probably a teenager by this point. He lays him down. Many believe, by the way, that he was in his 30s, like Jesus. He lays him down on the sticks. His son willingly lets him do that. He trusts his father. And as he lays him down, he ties him down. He raises the knife to slit his son's throat in obedience. Can you imagine that moment? And as he's getting ready, he's, he's right on the cusp of, of making the decision you can't go back from. And the Lord says, stop. And as he stops, he says, look. And they look. And, and in some of the bramble on top of that mountain, guess what shows up? Tangled in this bush is a ram to sacrifice a substitution for Isaac. He says, now I know that you'll obey me no matter what it costs you. And the ram is provided, as it always is, at just the right time. And the firstborn is what? Saved. And now they get to worship at the cost of what God provides, not at what Abraham provides. So God gets involved personally, both for the Israelites and for us. And this is a foretaste of what he would do for the entire world who would receive it. This is a foretaste, even in Abraham's day, of what we're going to read about today. So chapter 11, verse 1, longest intro ever. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. So, The Pharaoh has not ever let the Israelites go, but it says, after I bring this plague, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, God is saying before it's happened, when this comes to pass, and I love this because the Lord is always saying when, he's not saying if, when he says something will come to pass, we can trust it. We can take it to the bank. This is a check that will not bounce. He says, when he lets you go. Not only will he let you go, he will drive you out of here all together. It won't just be some of you. He'll send all of you out. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. So Moses, who showed up basically as a vagabond, uh, you might say that he was a wanted criminal. When he left Egypt originally, he left because he had killed uh, one of Pharaoh's servants. He was a wanted man. And he comes back from the backside of the desert with a purpose that God gave him, I want you to deliver my people. 
And then as he's prepared to deliver the people and he's speaking to Pharaoh, he feels like a failure over and over and over. And as he, in his mind, might call himself a failure, he's gained stature in the community that once saw him as a murderer. They see him as great in the land. Why? Well, it's not because of anything that Moses has accomplished. They see him as great because he is, he, he's just been obedient, <laughs> over and over and over. And I tell you what, in your life, if you can be obedient to God, even when it doesn't look like you've been successful, God will reward obedience. And it may not be a reward that you're looking for, but he will give you favor with those that he wants to reach through simple obedience that doesn't even look successful. That's how God works. I can't explain it. I just know it to be true by experience. And so verse four, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. This is what God has said he will do. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. This is bad news. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, so the firstborn son of Pharaoh, he will die. Even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill. So from the very highest in the community to the very poorest of the community, the firstborn will be taken and all the firstborn also of the animals. And so then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall there be like it again. But remember the purpose of that, this plague. The purpose of this plague is to what? Judge Egypt, but deliver those who trust the Lord. To judge the world, but to deliver the saved. And so he says, against none of the children of Israel, as they are being delivered, shall, be a, shall a dog move its tongue. Why does a dog move its tongue? I, I read this and I was like, I don't remember this ever being in this verse. This is a weird phrase. Why does a, a dog move its tongue? Well, our dog, Sadie, moves her tongue to lick us when we would prefer that she would stop and not lick us ever. She's constantly, we pet her and then she licks us like, oh, pet me some more. I'm like, if you want me to pet you, that's not the way to get me to do it. Now I'm going to smack your nose. But that's why they move their tongue. But another reason dogs move their tongue is to lick wounds. Another reason is to eat, right? But what this passage is about is barking. Now, what do dogs bark at? If they're like my dog, they bark at anything that moves. And, and so you imagine as God is delivering his people from the land in the middle of the night, what are dogs going to start doing? They're going to bark. They're going to howl. They're going to hear something and be spooked. And they're, they, they do what dogs do. They're going to bark. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. When they leave, not even a dog's going to bark. It's going to be peaceful. Not like my neighborhood at night. When one dog barks, they all start picking it up. But they're going to be leaving and God's going to hold their tongue. They're going to be silenced and against man or beast. So they're going to leave with their families. Or they're going to leave with their livestock and not a sound will be made for this purpose. <laughs> that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and and the Israelites. And we've seen this in plagues already. He makes a difference. He makes a distinction between the Israelites and between the Egyptians. 
Well, how did he make that distinction? Well, when there was judgments, they would happen to the Egyptians in the land of Egypt, but in Goshen, they would not take place. But in this case, in this last plague, the difference will not just be shown in God's favor, it will be shown in the Israelites' actions. They're going to have to get involved with their salvation. They're going to have to do some things, obeying the word of the Lord to be saved. Does that make sense? And so in chapter 12, well, I haven't finished chapter 11, forgive me. So all these your servants shall come down to me. They will bow down to me saying, get out all the people who follow you. So these are the servants of the Pharaoh. And after that, I will get out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So he's told all of this to the Pharaoh. This is what's going to happen. He, he's not asking him. He's not saying, if God does it, if the Lord wills. He's saying, the Lord has said he will do this. So I'm telling you ahead of time. And so as he leaves the meeting with Pharaoh, the Lord speaks to Moses, verse 9, and says, Pharaoh will not take heed to your words for this purpose, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And so, (laughs) the Lord reveals Pharaoh's heart to Moses. By the way, we can't know man's heart. The only person that knows man's heart is God himself. But the Lord tells Pharaoh's heart to Moses, and he says, the Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. So it came to pass, as the Lord said, all of these things. But before we get started, I want to ask you a question this morning that I've been asking myself. Am I like the Pharaoh? Am I a hard-hearted person that stopped listening to the voice of God over and over and over again, and now I can't receive from him? Or am I like Moses, who has become, as we've seen from the very beginning, go and speak to the people. I can't. Go and speak to the people. I I have a speech impediment. Go and speak to the people. Would you please send somebody else? That's how Moses started. But we see him in this chapter going, this is what God said, and I'm just telling you ahead of time. He's confident, not in his own ability, but in what God has said will come to pass. Are you like Pharaoh? So Romans chapter two is where I want to take you real quick. Are you like the Pharaoh? Romans chapter two, verse four. Do you despise the riches of God's goodness? Do you count them a common thing? Do you despise God's forbearance when he tells you something will happen and then it does? Do you take it as coincidence or do you embrace it? Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and his patience with you? Do you take his patience for granted, not knowing that the goodness listed in those things, the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to humility. It's meant to lead you to thankfulness for his goodness, and then you change your ways, that you respond and say, I was wrong. I need to change, Lord change me. But instead, to the Romans, he's writing and saying that there's this group of people that in accordance with their hardness and their impenitent heart, 
They're instead, uh, they're despising his goodness and they're, verse five, treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God will render to each one according to what he has worked, his deeds, his deeds. If you've done bad deeds, you will be judged for those deeds. And if you've done good deeds, you will be judged for those deeds. But the problem is the Bible says that if you've done one unrighteous act, if you've broken his law in any possible way, you'll be judged for that, not for the good that you're trying to outweigh the bad with. That's bad news, right? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He will render each one according to his deeds. Now, verse 7 says, Eternal life will be rendered to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. That should make you tremble. Of the Jew first, he says, and also of the Gentile or the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God does not judge with partiality. He doesn't treat one person different than the other. All are even in his sight. Doesn't matter their position. Doesn't matter how much money they have. Does not matter. (laughs) But Jesus said this. He said, this is how you must be saved. Believe on the one in whom the Father has sent. How may we work the works of God? In John, he says this. How may we work the works of God? If it says we'll be judged for what we do, our deeds. How can man be saved? How may we work the works of God, the good works? Not just our good, but what God calls good. Jesus said, believe on him in whom God sent. Believe the son. That's our work. If you want to be judged for a work, that's the work you will be judged for. If you've trusted in the son, that's work. It take, that's the work. That's it. That's all you can do. And so... Chapter 12, kind of got stuck on that, but I wanted to be clear. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So this particular instance, you're going to do these things. And what you're getting ready to experience with me will actually begin a new relationship with God. You're going to start a new life. 
In a sense, you're going to be born again. You're going to start your calendar over. They already had a calendar, by the way. They weren't so far, we're not talking cavemen to modern man, where they didn't keep time and now they do. They were keeping time by the Egyptian calendar by this point. But he says, I'm going to start your calendar over. And he says, and we'll find out later that the name of this month will be Nissan. Not like your pickup truck, not like your vehicle, but Nissan will be spelled with one S. Now, I don't know if there's some sort of tie together and how that company was started. I don't, I don't know. You have to do your own research. But this month shall be your beginning of months. So it's your, your year's going to start over. And it shall be the first month of the year to you. And, and then they're going to select a lamb. He says, pick out a lamb. But not just any lamb. This lamb is a special lamb. It needs to be on the 10th when you pick out the lamb. So the 10th of the month, there will be a one-year-old lamb. It's going to be a ram. It's going to be a male lamb. And it cannot have any blemishes. So it can't be one that has a birth defect. It can't be one that's got a scrape on it from after it was born. It's got to be without spot, without blemish. You might notice that this kind of sounds like Jesus. And we'll get there. He says, I want you to pick it out on the 10th and I want you to keep it until the 14th. So the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th. This would give them time to inspect the lamb. By the way, Jesus spent much time in Jerusalem. And if you notice in the gospel of Mark, they're spending all their time scrutinizing Jesus much like they would scrutinize this lamb to make sure he was without spot and blemish. You have time to inspect him, but also what happens when you bring an animal into your house? You start feeding it, making sure it has a place to go to the restroom, and you start to maybe, like my kids, they name it. We have chickens with names. Don't name your food, people. But here we have them spending time with it, and they're going to do what? They're going to get attached. They're going to start to love this animal. The kids are going to start naming it Lammy or Lamb Chop. And as they name it and they get comfortable with it, on the 14th, the fifth day, what are they going to have to do with it? Kill it. Now, if you pick something out of your field and go, okay, that's next month's beef, it's one thing. But if you take it out of the herd... Maybe it's a bottle calf. You know, maybe it's an animal that you spend a lot of time with. It follows you around the field when you take grain out there. It becomes more than just an animal. It becomes something special to you. And, and as they would do that, at the very end of it, at twilight, or we might use the word dusk, they were to kill it. All the congregation of Israel come together, and they would kill all their lambs at the same time. They would spill its blood Sacrifice, by the way, is costly. Jesus was given to us as the one that was with the Father before creation was started. And he sent him to us as his beloved son, not just a son, but one that he was at, at one with in the Godhead. And so this sacrifice cost God for our salvation. It always cost somebody. But notice that it's an innocent animal in exchange for our guilty, for our salvation. And then he says, take the blood and apply it to your doorposts. 
and the lintel, or we might call it the header over the door of the household, that the blood would be applied to the house where they would eat it. So verse 8, then they shall eat the flesh on that night. So the night that they killed this essentially what's become kind of a, a close pet of theirs, they're to eat its flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So they sh- this is the meal, bitter herbs, uh, unleavened bread, and the flesh of this lamb that they've chosen. He says, do not eat it raw. Do not boil the meat at all with water, but instead it must be roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. So the entire thing is to be roasted over fire, much like Jesus, who was tried by many trials, trial by fire, you might say. He experienced a lot of trials in his life, and he was roasted over the coals by the Pharisees. But what happens is when you cook something over fire, it purifies it when you cook it. It's grilled. It, you get it to the right temperature. Some of you are grill guys, and you, you know what temperature each meat has to be taken up to. It refines it. And, and it also exposes whether or not there's something wrong with the meat. But what we see here is that it's, it's cooked by fire, and the flesh is made ready to be eaten. And then he says, you shall not let any of it remain until morning. What remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So if you don't eat all of it, it needs to be completely consumed. Eat it all. But whatever doesn't get eaten, you shall consume it on the fire. Just like offering up a sacrifice, they would burn it on the altar. And so none of it shall remain until morning, which I think is interesting because Jesus, when crucified, he wasn't left there till morning because there was a law. They couldn't leave these bodies essentially up on the cross until the next day because it was during the time of Passover. So Jesus's body fulfilled Passover because it was consumed, it was broken, it was completely drained, completely spent on the cross, and then they took it down before it was Passover, before it was officially Passover and he was buried. He says, verse 11, you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it quickly or in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So completely consume it and eat it while you're ready to go. And some of you probably come home and you just eat in what you wore for the day. But most of you probably like to eat at ease. You got your, 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 your house clothes on and maybe your slippers and you're prepared to relax for the evening and you eat a meal together or maybe by yourself. But when you eat of it, he says, I want you to be fully dressed. I want you to be ready to go. I don't want you to be ready to stay. So be ready to go when you eat this. Have your belt on, have your shoes on, have your cloak on because what's the purpose of this plague? That they would be delivered from their slavery. So he's told them ahead of time, this plague is gonna deliver you. You're gonna have victory over Pharaoh. You're gonna get to leave and come serve me. So dress like it. God has saved each one of you from your sin. He's delivered you from the power of sin. He's promised he's coming back for you. Do you spend your time prepared to be delivered into glory? Are you living and dressing and acting and being 
like you're not a citizen here, but you're actually ready to go home, to be delivered from this land of bondage into the land of promise? Are, are you dressed like it spiritually and physically? And so completely consume it and be ready to leave. Eat it with readiness and hastily. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt. And we've already heard this. Chapter 11 was basically an outline of all that would take place. And now we're getting into the details. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. This isn't him saying, I am the Lord. This is him saying, I alone am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm your deliverer. I'm going to judge. Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you. So you might say, okay, the judgment's coming and now we're supposed to have a feast. What do these two things have to do with each other? I'm glad you asked because verse 13, he says, the blood shall be a sign for you that you're mine. You're set apart by the blood of the lamb. It'll be on your houses applied as I have said. And when I see the blood, it's a sign to him that they've trusted that what he said will deliver them. I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you. See, you're on the block for destruction as well because of your sin. So if you apply the blood of the lamb to your home and you stay under the blood, guess what? My destruction will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Trusting in the blood means that we will not be judged with the world. That's powerful. I'm trusting in the blood. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And so what they're doing here is he's setting up a memorial. And memorials are set up so we can remember something that happened in the past so that we're not doomed to go through it again in the future. And right, all of you are thinking, right now we tear down memorials like that's our culture. But God's in the business of setting up memorials, but he's also not in the business of staying with that memorial and just living there as a tradition. There's meaning behind it. There's a reason that he sets up memorials. And so verse 14, he says, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And so the blood applied is how God knows that they have trusted and heeded him. It's evidence that they fear and believe that what he says is so. God says it's a sign for you to me. And when I see it, when the Lord sees that you've trusted in the blood, he will pass over you and your firstborn shall be safe from judgment. And in John chapter six, I'm not going to turn there for time's sake, Jesus said to another crowd that might have struggled with this, can you imagine being in these homes and God says, I want you to kill a lamb. I want you to take hyssop, which was a plant that they would have. It's like a dry, it's almost like a broom, like a dry, crusty broom. And they would put it in the blood and then they would use that as their paintbrush to put it on the doorpost and on the lentils. And I don't care who you are. If you're the first one hearing this, you're going, What? I'm supposed to put blood on my house? My wife's not going to like that. It doesn't go with the paint scheme, you know, or, you know, like it's, 
why would we put, it's kind of gruesome, right? If, if I'm driving through Ironton and I drive by a house that has blood painted on it, I start praying immediately because something wrong is going on. Let's put up the crime scene tape, right? Let's not get too comfortable with this idea of blood spread on anything. It's gross. It's gruesome. It means something died or is mortally wounded. And so with that being the case, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people in Jerusalem. I think it was in Jerusalem. And his disciples are there and he says something that if we're not careful, we get comfortable with it, but it would be creepy. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, by the way, not condoned in the law to eat humans or to drink blood. That's why vampires are such a demonic thought, like that we would read it and be entertained by it. But that being said, he, they were having those thoughts like, you want us to be, you want us to drink your blood and, and eat your body? That's, that's horrendous to even think that way. What are you saying? But by the end of the passage there in John 6, he says, for my, my body is bread. Then he goes immediately to talking about bread. And I've always wondered why, because it's almost like he's mixing metaphors and things break down really quickly when you put too many metaphors in one context. But what's interesting is the old, his audience is Jewish. And so in the Old Testament, they would go directly from the 10th day of Nisan. They would, they would pick the, the lamb and then to the 14th, they would slaughter the lamb. And on the 14th, which is the first day of, they had the feast of the Passover lamb. Then they immediately after they eat the lamb, they would have the feast of unleavened bread. So he is that unleavened bread. Two feasts that kind of get tied together in scripture. And yet they happen immediately after each other. And it's because immediately after eating the Passover lamb and trusting in the blood, they would immediately start eating unleavened bread, which takes us to verse 14. He says, so this day shall be to you a memorial. And then in verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. What is leaven? It is yeast. It's what we make our really doughy, thick crust pizza from. You put yeast in the dough. Or if you're making bread, you got one of those bread makers. By the way, if you have a bread maker, how come you haven't made me any? I really love good, doughy, fresh, homemade bread. Just, just a side note. But, but, but what we think of is we think of doughy bread. It's a good thing. But yeast in the Bible or leaven is a picture of sin. And sin, when it's in your life, it permeates every portion of your life and it breaks things down. It doesn't build up. And it puffs you up, just like leaven would in bread. And so he says, at the beginning of this feast, take all the leaven out of your house. So it's a picture of sin, but it's also a practical thing. Because what are they getting ready to do? They're going to leave Egypt. And they're having this feast and they're making bread, but they don't have time. You have to wait for the dough to rise, right? Before you bake it. Well, if they're going to be taken out hastily, they don't have any time for the dough to rise. So it's a practical thing. You're going to need some bread, but you don't have time for it to rise. So just make flat bread. Make it without any yeast. It's going to be like crackers, but it'll be enough to sustain you as you travel. And so he says there in verse 15, 
On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. That's how we prepare ourselves to receive the Lord. Get the leaven out. Get the sin out so that you can clearly see the Lord. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So leaven in the house was grounds for sending you out. You don't get to partake. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there should be a holy convocation for you. The word there is holy day, or where we get our word holiday, which anymore doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. No manner of work shall be done on these days, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So the work that you can do is preparing a meal for you and your household only. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. He's telling him again, on this same day that you get the leaven out of your house, I will have already brought your armies. He's calling them something they're not. I'm going to make you an army and I'm going to bring you out of the land, deliver you from the Pharaoh. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread only." So then Moses called for all of the elders of Israel and said to them, he tells them the plan for salvation. He tells them the plan for their deliverance. He's giving them their marching orders, except it's not how to pack their stuff. It's how to prepare their hearts. We spend most of our time preparing our households physically, don't we? It's natural. And yet we could spend our whole life getting our household in order physically and miss out that Jesus came to get our household in order spiritually. If you're not prepared to, be, to see Jesus face to face, you can, you can motif and decorate and, and do all your gardening and, and make sure, it, but none of that stuff can benefit you in the life that is to come. Jesus says, get your house in order. Yes, be financial stewards of the money he provides. But if you spend more time getting your physical house ready than you do your spiritual house, you're going to gain the whole world and so are your children and and you're going to lose some souls, maybe even your own. So get prepared. Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. (laughs) Stay in your home during the time of judgment. Stay under your shelter. Who is your shelter? Not what is your shelter. Your shelter is the home God gives you with the blood applied. That blood is important. We just sang that. There's power in the blood of the lamb. That's what he was talking about. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. Again, those details are important. That blood can't be applied to somebody else's house. It has to be applied to you, to your household. 
The Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. The only thing that sets you apart will be the blood applied. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. So it's for you and your descendants. And it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you. This land he's been promising since Abraham. I'm going to give you this land. Just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it's not like a church service. Although in some ways it is. It's a feast. It's a celebration. It's a festival to celebrate and look back on what God did. They were going to do this every year. This wasn't a one-time thing. Every year they would remember how God delivered them. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Kids ask why a lot, don't they? Don't squelch that. That is God by his divine providence putting in them a hunger for the truth. And when they say why, it's an opening to talk about him. It's an opening to explain him to them. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why are we killing this lamb? Why are we killing lambie, mommy? Well, because God delivered us through the blood of the lamb back in our beginning of a nation. He says that you shall say to them, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. This was their response to this sacrifice. This was this, their response to the blood. This was their response to his promise to take them out of this land. This was a bitter place for them. 400 years. By the end, 430 years. And they were slaves. This was not a happy place for them. They weren't just moving from a house they enjoyed to another house. They were moving out of a place where they were property. And they were abused. So the people bowed their heads and they worshiped in thankfulness. Notice, before they were delivered, worship can take place before the fulfillment of what God has said he will do. And we'll worship him before it's taken place. When it takes place, we'll worship even more. It's called thankfulness. So then the children of Israel went away and they did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And so what we see is that centuries later in Mark chapter 14, in this next slide, Mark chapter 14, Jesus shows up. He's been walking with his disciples. And as he's been walking with his disciples, guess what month comes up? Nisan. And guess what day comes up? The 14th of Nisan. That was the day that they would kill the lamb. So in Mark chapter 14, sorry, I got the wrong page here. Mark chapter 14, in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, the 14th, when they killed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples, being Jewish, many of them, said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare? that you may eat the Passover. And Jesus sent out two of his disciples and told them to make preparations. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So he practiced the feasts. And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city 
and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there make preparations for our meal. So his disciples went out, came into the city, found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared Passover, just like they did every year for the, all of their lives as little Jewish boys. And in the evening, he came with the twelve. And as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. That's interesting. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him, One by one, is it I? Or is it I that I will betray him? And he answered and said to them, It's one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. So it would be like going to Checo's. And you sit down and everybody gets a bowl of salsa, right? And if, you, if you're like me, I, I don't like anything mixed in it. And so a buddy of mine would always put salt in his. I'm like, well, I'll try it. And now we always sit at the same end of the table together if we eat Mexican because the way he dolls up his salsa is like the best. But in the Jewish Seder, in the Passover, there are only a couple of bowls around the table and if you're sitting close to, this tells us where Jesus was sitting in relation to John, who was leaning up against him, and then in relation to Judas. And they were sharing a salsa bowl together, essentially. So in the sharing of that bowl, he's telling them specifically, it's not one of the 12, it's one of the 12 that's sitting close to me. Which is interesting because, you know, that phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, that Jesus kind of did that, right? And so he says to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. So the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It's already been foretold that he would be betrayed, but woe unto the man who betrays him. So in other gospel accounts, what happens is Jesus looks at Judas at just the right time and he says to him, what you must do, do quickly. And all the other disciples thought that he was going to make preparations or buy materials because he was the one that kept the money. But what Jesus was doing was sending him out to do what he was foretold to do, to betray him, to give him over to the hands of sinners. Why do you think that is? Well, you remember in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 12, he said, on the first day, get rid of the leaven from your houses. What is Judas doing? He's sending the leaven out. I, I just realized this last night. He's getting the leaven out of the house just like they were told to do in the law. Get the leaven out and then eat the unleavened bread for seven days. And so he continues and it says there in verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Feast of unleavened bread. He blessed it and broke it. By the way, they would have done that. And as I read further on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would many times during the Passover have three pieces of matzah. And they would take the middle one and break it. They would hide a piece of it and leave the other piece inside of the bag of matzah. And the kids, as a game, would go find the matzah or the cracker. And by the way, the Jews don't even know why they do this. They don't know why they do this in their tradition. I believe it's because it's a picture of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is broken, and he's put under the ground for three days. And then the disciples, the children, 
the apostles even, go to find the bread. And whether or not that's the case, I don't know, but I just think it's really beautiful. And then what we see here is as they get rid of the unleavened bread, and then Jesus says to them in the middle of the feast that they were used to taking every year, he interrupts the the normal progression, and he says, take this bread and eat it. It was always about my body. This is the bread I've provided for you. No leaven, no sin, offered up for you, broken, eat it. It's going to be what sustains you. So then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He didn't take it, but he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. The blood applied, the blood taken in. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. And surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so I had some other notes, but I want to stop here. Because that very night, Jesus was handed over to be killed. His blood was poured out, his flesh completely offered up like the lamb, not to remain until morning. Not one bone will be broken. We'll read that in the later part of this chapter. They were not to break any bones in the, in the lamb. Just like Jesus, his bones were never broken. His death instead of mine. His death instead of yours and mine. And so the question I would have is, is his sacrifice yours? Have you, have you taken it as a personal sacrifice for you? This is the work we'll be judged for. What did you do with my son? Did you believe that his, he was the lamb that John spoke of there at the river? He said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And none of the other disciples at that point even knew what he was talking. They thought he was crazy. And yet he already saw what God was getting ready to do and was trying to prepare the hearts of those that would receive it. And I would say to you that this was just a dress rehearsal, that what we read about today was a dress rehearsal of what Jesus was going to do in fulfilling it. And what Hebrews says is that it was not sufficient for the blood of bulls and goats. That sacrifice was never sufficient to cleanse us of sin. It was only good enough to cover our sin until the sin cleanser would come. Jesus Christ, a spotless human being, our judgment placed upon his shoulders And so as we take communion today, I want to remind you, this is a memorial. It is not our salvation. This this cracker that we eat that is probably not the greatest cracker in the world, this juice that we drink that's, that's just grape juice, it's a symbol that we celebrate and we look back on what God did do in delivering the Israelites what he did do in delivering anyone who would call upon his name from their sin and what he's promised to do when we celebrate that we're going to celebrate this in the kingdom of heaven at a table that's big enough for all of us and Jesus is going to be there and we will look upon the lamb who was slain and we'll have nothing to say but what we sang this morning worthy of honor and glory worthy of all of our praise, he overcame. Death brought life, and only God can do that. So as we sing this song, as the worship team leads us, we will sing.
and, and the ushers will pass out the elements and I will encourage you. The blood was applied to the posts and the lintel on the top, not underneath the threshold, not on the threshold because it's not to be trampled on. Recognize what we are celebrating. Recognize whose blood it costs for our salvation. So Father, to all of those who do not discern what we are doing, I pray that they would be brave enough to let the cup pass. But maybe this morning they would recognize what it is and say, Lord, I want that blood applied to my house. Apply it to me. I trust that your blood is able for me not only to have my sin forgiven, to have judgment pass over, but to start a new relationship, a new life with you that starts today. For all of us who have trusted in the blood of the Lamb, I pray that as we pray and as we sing this song and as the elements are handed out, that we would be able to, with each other, say to you simply, thank you. Thank you for providing deliverance. Thank you for judging our enemies. Thank you for overcoming what I could never overcome on my own. May we worship in spirit and in, and in truth. May this not be a meaningless time, but a, a very meaningful time of, of just recognizing all you are and all that you've done. Thank you, Lord, for providing. In Jesus' name, amen.